Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. Stucker, you here? And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to the podcast, my hoes. Welcome back, everyone, to the history of everything where we are going into a whole host and different variety of topics. I think we um we, we covered a lot of yeah. American topics over the past few weeks, which that's just I think how it lined up based on what was being read. Um, But we're back to branching out to, you know, around the world. Anything and everything over all periods of time from the most random kind of stuff that you can imagine. Truthfully, though, today's episode, if you've probably already read the title and the description, it's something that is not super random because a whole bunch of people already kind of know what this is, but they may not know the exact details. I am of it. literally going to get roasted in YouTube comments because I've never heard of this. Like, I'm, it's not something I'm familiar with. Listen, for anyone, for anyone that grew up on like PlayStation and I, I don't think it was on Xbox, but like PlayStation and PC on occasion playing the uh, like the Dynasty Warriors games. If you know what I'm talking about, if you ever seen the videos here, the hack and slash. Okay, just imagine one dude with a spear, like with a glaive, just going in and literally taking on thousands of people at the same time in just these massive brawls where it's like one man army is going through and taking care of stuff. We'll get into that's a whole other. We might not get into it. That's a whole aspect of this. If you didn't get it already, if you hadn't read the title, if you just saw that there was a new episode and you clicked on it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this. We're going to be talking about the Three Kingdoms period today. The Three Kingdoms of China, one of the most batshit periods in history. This took place from, the, you had the early parts from 184 to 190 AD. And then this was then followed by, AD? well, that's what I typically say, CE, AD, etc. It's how I, it's a little, I guess, side note here for anyone. You can say it however it is that you want. I say AD because it was how I learned. And simultaneously, I find there to be no point in changing the nomenclature of it because it means the exact same thing from what it's referencing. That's my personal stance on it, at least. It doesn't have anything to do with any other kind of belief system. Just find that to be pointless otherwise. At least that's my opinion on it. So before we begin, before we get into all this, I would ask that you all please make sure to support us on Patreon if you'd like. Always add free episodes that go up on there. Simultaneously, you get early access to episodes as well as other little goodies that will be on there as well. Uh, our pod, not podcast, our coffee, which you could drink while enjoying this podcast. And also check out the YouTube channel. Check out this month's audiobook. Check out everything. Because what was it that we were going over at the end of this month? Iran. Oh, yeah, yes. Iran. Sorry. I was like, what are you, you talking You were the one about? that was reminding me today to make sure that well, I start. I, just, I bought the book because I was working on next week's episode on... um like plagues. Basically I started plagues. reading a book on plagues throughout history yeah. because I went to buy this month's audiobook so I can start listening to it. 
and they hadn't updated it yet because I guess no one was in the office like because of New Year's. New Year's. I mean, it happens. So it's New I, Year's. I bought this plague book because I couldn't get our book. It was like $32 or something. So I had to wait until they reduced it. I guess as a preview book club for price. anyone that might be wondering here, does it just go over like one particular topic or or like I know you said plague, but is it? Talk about a variety of different ones. So it talks about how germs impacted history. It basically talks about plagues from the very beginning. So plagues that were referenced in the Bible, plagues that were referenced throughout like Egyptian history. Um, the, the You know, the plagues of Egypt, a mm-hmm. lot of plagues in Egypt. And then um, the Athenian plague. Ant- Anton- the Antonine plague. Right. That plague. And that's the one I'm going to be writing about. And then like, obviously the bubonic plague. So it just it covers plagues throughout history and how they shaped what we see today, all the way down to COVID, honestly, because you wouldn't believe it. But they, they were going over just how I'm throughout history. They actually. Oh, sorry. I am rambling. I'm stuttering. Welcome to because my, my brain is like jumping from one thing to the other because there were so Welcome many cool to things. My life. But there was this one section of the book where they're actually able to show a lot more references to plagues. They're actually able to prove that plagues would have been in Scandinavia, um, Bronze Age, during the Bronze Age, I think. Basically, I mean, a lot of different places where we would not have expected there to be plague, they are able to find it because during archaeological digs, they're able to use DNA extracted from teeth of skeletons. Oh, and detect it. Like, right. like when they dig up and they find and cows I thought infected that with was anthrax. So cool. And I wrote this down because I'll go over it in not like next week's uh, podcast, but the one on the bubonic plague. I have that in those notes where they're actually, they found it in Scandinavia. They found it like all around the world, basically. It's really interesting. So just, you know, keep listening. It'll come up when and, I finish writing it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm really glad that you're getting into uh, writing and preparing some of this other stuff that we have going because we have, as we said from the beginning, a whole host of different topics and things that we want to write about. If you have any suggestions of things that you would like for us to talk about, please send them by email. You can go to our website. The contact is in there to be able to send us information. Or if we're on Patreon, send them to the comments of Patreon because we read those. Exactly. And we would like to see what it is that people want to hear from us. But again, I digress. It's been like five minutes. We got to get into today's topic. What we're talking about is, again, the Three Kingdoms period one of the most famous and chaotic periods in all of Chinese history. So for anyone who doesn't know what this is, like Gabby, you don't recognize what this is off the top of your head. Um, And for anyone that might kind of know it referenced from either games or movies or books or anything like that, but not really understand the story, this this is what happened. So you have the Han Dynasty, right? The Han Dynasty is the equivalent of, in China, what Rome is in the West. It's the classic Chinese dynasty. It was not the first, but it was arguably the most famous of the ancient ones that people would call back to. Because the Han dynasty was around from like 200 something BC all the way until 280. Like it was a 400 long year empire. It was huge. But towards the end of its life, the government was really not able to do anything to manage society. There were uprisings. There were localized wars. There were rebellions. There was all kinds of different things that were just destroying it. What would happen is that the capital would fall, followed by the Han Dynasty itself, all in very quick succession, completely split apart into different rival powers that were at court in the countryside. All these different groups, including eunuchs, 
which had taken over the country, basically, and were running it from behind the scenes. So they had eunuchs as well? Oh, yeah, no, the, the Chinese were one of the big major groups. Like, they were the ones famous for eunuchs at this time. Like, if you want to look at the societies that had the largest amount here, before the rise of large Islamic empires, they were the ones that largely had these. So there was, I think at the time of the Han Dynasty, the entire government pretty much was controlled by a group of around 2,000 eunuchs who operated essentially all higher levels of government. Like they were the ones who held sway over everything. And so the order of the emperor's rule was then replaced by chaos of these different competing warlords that would take over. Men like Dong Zhou, Wu Bu, Cao Cao, all of which were ruthless and possessed ambition. The ambition to rule all of China. But that's something that we're going to get into after this commercial break. Hey everyone, Sakuya here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we're back. Okay, so this period is really big. It's long been something that captures the public imagination, really beginning with the Song Dynasty, which was around like the 900s or so. And this reached a kind of fever pitch going into the Romance of the Three Kingdoms. For anyone who has heard that phrase but may not exactly recognize what it is, that is the arguably fantasy historical version of these events that we're going to talk about. This was a historical novel that was developed during the Ming Dynasty, either somewhere in like the 14th or the 15th century. And it is talking about these in huge poetic stories. It's like, like think about how impactful things as such as like the Odyssey and other stuff like that were in the Western world, where they would be referencing back to all of these older works. Well, in Ming China, the Romance of the Three Kingdoms was like, this was their epic. This was this was the thing that they were hearkening back to. So this is a epic work that takes place almost 1300 years after the events that they're talking about. And the whole thing is heavily romanticized. It's filled with different kinds of versions of the events. It has massive cultural heroes and villains and everything that people talk about. Liu Bei, who was the Confucius ruler of the Shu state. His general, Guan Yu, who became a literal god of war. Guan Di, Sun Quan, like the founder of Eastern Wu. All these different people here. Like some of these people, again, were literally deified at this time. Like they were turned into gods in the same way as like Roman emperors were. 
Okay, when you said literally turn into a god, I was like, um, explain. What what I mean is that, um, so let's say someone lived such a huge, massive life that they they accomplished something. It's like becoming a saint. They ascend. Yes. So they are literally worshipped as a god, like they became a god. Because you also have to remember that this is China. So ancestral worship is very big and important. So the idea of someone achieving godhood is definitely possible because you become so important as an ancestor. You are literally a god, except you're worshipped by everyone, not just members of your family. So that that's what would happen. This novel covers China's history going from 168 all the way to 280 and is still to this day extremely popular. We still see movies that are, re- are released. There's theater productions. There's literature. There's games like Dynasty Warriors? Actually, actually, wait. Can you look it up on your phone right now? What is the latest Dynasty Warriors? I'm pretty sure if I remember, it's Dynasty Warriors 9. Empire is the latest one. And that came out like one or two years ago. I'm pretty sure that that is the case. But I I still remember. I've played a couple of them. I remember I had like Dynasty Warriors 5. I had Dynasty Warriors 7. And I had Dynasty Warriors 8. I think 9 is the last... There's... Dynasty Warriors 10. There's 10. Is there 10? When was that released? No, will Dynasty Warriors 10 ever see light of day? Or is it slowly dying? So I'm assuming it didn't release. The the thing about it, Gab, this this is for anyone who, like the games are fun. Don't get me wrong, they're fun. But they are literally telling the exact same story every single time. And there is hardly any difference between a bunch of the games. It's kind of like when you get a sports game. You know what I'm talking about? Where what is the difference between FIFA 2005 versus FIFA 2006? There's some versions that we'll have of different things. I will continue to play NBA 2K 10 through 23. It is what it is. Like, what are you going to do? There's different players. Yeah. And they'll have different things. They'll have That's different the events. There's but different it is, players. It's the same thing in most cases, which is why I didn't get every single one. I would usually skip three or four generations before I would do it. I would be so forgetful. I would play every single one and be shocked every single time. You know me. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. But hey, that makes it fun. That makes it at least enjoyable for this. So, again, this was a really big deal. But to understand it, we have to go into the background of it in order to try and understand a little bit more. So you have the Han Dynasty, which had been ruling China since 206 BC, the most successful dynasty that it had had yet to that point. But by the second century, the emperors were having a lot of issues. You had a central government which was dominated by a secretive inner court with access to it that was controlled very strictly by scheming court eunuchs that were trying to control every kind of aspect of power they could. You had governor or like provincial leaders and governors off in different provinces who were starting to gain more and more control of all of their local affairs of everyday people in the provinces. There is less central authority from the main government to be able to do anything. Rebellions had become more common since like the 140s. And at that point, they had been dealt with by sending officials there to bribe like local strongmen. There really was no big central army at that point of significance. Yes, you had the Han army, like you had something that would serve them, but the emperor really couldn't do much. The military forces were under token allegiance to Han rulers. They primarily were going to be stationed on the frontiers. They had very little motivation to remain loyal 
to their commanders, who oftentimes were not even there in the field at that point. Their leaders were off in the capital, you know, partying while, while the soldiers were out in the sticks. And so the local leaders that were ruling them, who were actually managing them, they're the ones that were earning their loyalty. So it's like a corporation. Kind of like their corporation. You'd have like the higher ups who are just off doing their own thing. And then you have like the on the ground leadership that like everyone would die for. Yes. And if you want to draw parallels to anything, think of what was happening with like what happened with Caesar in Rome, where generals were accruing a lot of power and then would march on Rome to take power. That's it's, it's Honestly, really I'd is comparable. Honestly, I'd do it too for an empire. It really is comparable when you're looking at this. So there really was no motivation for these people to remain loyal to their commanders in chief who were off in a distance. And then the Han decision to change the age old policy of giving temporary commands of armies for specific campaigns and then recalling the generals back to the capital before they got, you know, any ideas of being disloyal. Yeah, that was changed because these people had so much power now that what the Han emperors were doing, what the government was doing was stationing people there permanently. You know what the problem is with stationing something in a place permanently? They can build more power because they're on the ground right there. People are interacting with them every day. They can build rapport. And then eventually they're no longer loyal to the emperor. They're loyal to the commander. It's like your corporate analogy. Exactly what you gave. Yeah, that's exactly what ended up happening. So it was individual commanders in the field who would earn the respect and loyalty of the troops. These being a mix of professionals, convicts, local tribesmen, etc. People who never cared about the distant emperor that was supposedly ruling over them. And the fact that they received their pay directly from their commander, not some distant bureaucrat, that would do more than anything to secure their allegiance. There was one local landlord who noted, orders from the provincial and camaraderie governments arrive like thunderbolts. Imperial edicts are merely hung up on the wall like decorations. So if they got any central order from the capital that said, hey, move to this position, they're like, okay, I guess we're going to do it. Sure. But if their commander walks in and says, all right, we're marching here. All right, everyone up. We're going. No, I'm not even joking. That's like how it works in like the business, not even business in like a team, any sort of team setting. If you have a team, the team becomes really loyal to like the per person who immediately directs them and then everyone above that person they just see as like a robot just like moving people around which is cogs in the machine of bureaucracy yeah because if someone is not there seeing what you're dealing with on a day-to-day right but this emperor in this far off like city is like oh i know you guys have been starving and it's been raining for five days but um can you go down over here and attack these guys they're gonna be like what are you on like what, what what are you doing exactly because he doesn't know. He hasn't seen it. Also, they, I think it's harder to respect people if you haven't seen them in action also. So I think seeing their commander with them would have helped. Correct. They were the ones who had the respect and the loyalty. And the entire time that that's happening with all the soldiers, the peasants, like the people that are supporting this entire structure in the first place, they're suffering. Which, I mean, to be fair, is something that was always happening through history. Peasant suffering. It's nothing new. But they're suffering more. In what this case, the was what was the emperor doing to keep the because the thing that you have to always remember is you have to at least keep the loyalty of the commander. So what was he doing to keep their loyalty? Good question. That's a good question. It's really it would depend upon the time and place and who was responsible. But there could be a mixture of bribes, posts, honorary posts. Oh, that was a big thing. 
honorary posts, titles, prestige. Honor and prestige were very, 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 very important. So bestowing titles and accolades and different things upon a person was a way to raise their standing in society around their peers. So oftentimes these titles and things were used or official positions within the court as a kind of bribe to get people on your side. And that's that's what they would do. The title could mean nothing. Like it could be the official ass scratcher for all you care, which, mind you, actually, in some cases, like in the French, that would be a legit thing that King Louis would do. One of the many Louis. But in this case, we're talking about Sun King Louis. Um, but what they would do is they would give out these titles, these accolades, these bribes, these other things, and they would do it to secure their loyalty. Problem was, when you have governors and provincial leaders who are on the outskirts and never come back to the capital, well, they're accruing all that power there. So they're like an official title in court means nothing because they're not in the capital. They're not doing anything with it. They're out there in the sticks doing their thing. Write that down, you guys. If you want to command a giant empire, make sure your commanders are at home. Thank you. <laughs> I was drinking my drink right there and I nearly snorted that. Okay. So as I said, uh, the, the peasants were suffering. This is the usual thing in all of history. Welcome to history. Peasants suffer. It's what ends up happening. But it was particularly bad at this time because you were having all these natural disasters that were attacking China, especially floods and earthquakes, as well as wars with the type of people called the Shanbi. Now, the Shanbi, which were north of the Great Wall, the nomadic tribesmen, they felt very threatened by Chinese expansion. And so all these people were glad to have Chinese luxury goods that were being traded with them, and they welcomed the in, in initial interactions that would happen. They cared more about maintaining their sense of independence. So as the Zhangbi were resisting more and more Chinese encroachment, the Chinese government simply went, okay, we're going to send more military expeditions against them because you got to keep them down. You got to stop them. Because also these tribesmen, some of them are raiding and you have to pacify these lands in order to maintain control. So that's what they're going to do. And that policy of just continuing to funnel all of these military resources towards the frontier with governors and leaders who were staying there and not moving anything. This contributed greatly to a undermining of imperial authority because there were so few gains that they actually made with considerable losses, which upset people, and simultaneously funneled all these resources into the hands of these commanders that were on the frontier that would maintain their own power. Really, little was or could be done in order to improve the life of the peasants, because the state coffers at this point were pretty much empty after dealing with the Jean B. But in order to talk about that more before we do anything, because I realize I've been going on for this a while, we need to have a commercial break. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. 
We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? (laughs) You get the goofiest game in history, Queen's Podcast. Hi, I'm Nathan. And I'm Katie. And we're the host of Queen's Podcast. Join us while we spill the tea on women from history. We get into all kinds of stories here, like biographies of lesser-known figures. For instance, Saida Halhura, powerful pirate queen. To the stories you might already know, like Marie Antoinette or Cleopatra, but with a fun twist. Each queen is paired with a cocktail that'll totally get you in the mood to hear fun, juicy, and dramatic stories from history. Because history is so much more than just dudes on a battlefield, and we believe that the female perspective and roles are just as deserving of their time in the spotlight. Right. So come get to know these queens. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers. And we're back. Okay. So I, I realize, especially after this, um, I just go and talk a lot, which my wife here is can attest to is definitely a normal thing that happens very often. So I kind of forget at some point, like, wait, how far are we since the last one? Should I stop here at this point and do it? And yeah, yeah. So I look down at the clock and I'm like, oh, crap, we need to stop here for a moment. Anyway, on to the story with the Jean B. So one of the examples of the wars with them is that in 177, there was a case where they led the Chinese army into an ambush in the northern steppes, which was so successful that, quote, three quarters of the men failed to return. Further, the fact that taxes were all too often just avoided or siphoned off by these corrupt officials who were building their power bases in these individual areas, this would just make their lives much more hellish for any of the peasants that were there. Regional governors would then have to find their own ways of raising revenue. There was really no kind of guiding policy that would be handed down from the capital. They were given free reign to do whatever it is that they could. So they pretty much had one option. Arm oneself to the best of their degree to in order to protect themselves. Landlords would go and if they had the means to do so, they would organize their own kind of private armies or militias. They would recruit from their tenants and their local farmers and they would get their own forces. Those that couldn't rely on a richer, more wealthy and powerful benefactor would just flee to the hills or elsewhere, which resulted in large scale migrations and all this instability. Sometimes even entire villages would just relocate to higher ground where they could then surround themselves with fortifications, making their own little kind of castle village town. Just to either defend themselves from outside forces like bandits, internal forces from the government, or just simply floods. So they could get up higher so that they wouldn't have to deal with it to nearly the same degree. It very quickly was becoming apparent that China was becoming a free for all. Like this was the battle royale that was really starting it up here. And so in the last two decades of the second century, the steady decline of the Han and the constant rumblings of the provincial discontent suddenly burst out of control with one of the most serious and long lasting rebellions that had ever been witnessed by China. That would be the Yellow Turban Rebellion, which exploded in 184, led by a rather charismatic individual who was a Taoist mystic called Zhang Zhe. And he died in 184 as well. So he died that same year. But it didn't matter because the movement itself 
would wreak havoc on the land for effectively decades. This was a very popular uh, religious movement because you've seen what kind of destruction can be caused by certain cults of things. Like, remember how there are those like mass suicide cults that sometimes randomly appear in different places because they believe the world is going to end and they off themselves when something happens. I thought that was just in the movies, but thanks for informing me. Oh, no, we could cover some of those. Like if we did the entire story of the Heaven's Gate people, which that was a whole real thing. When they say, oh, don't drink the Kool-Aid because it's like poisoned. Yeah, that was a real thing that happened. The look of horror on your face. Wait, did you think that was only in like cartoons or something where people have referenced it like Family Guy? I thought it was a funny saying, like don't drink the Kool-Aid because Kool-Aid is bad for you. No. It is bad for you. No, it's because they mixed like, I think the, the thing they used was like cyanide and rat poison, which was, or it was like a type of rat poison that was derived from cyanide that they'd used. To, Did uh, they know they were going to drink rat poison? Yeah. Okay, yeah. let's, let's get back on this. I'm going to look into that. Oh yeah, no, that's going to be a fun You're thing You're going to leave everyone like, wait, what? <laughs> so this thing explodes out of control and it's a very populous religious movement. So the yellow turban cult was very closely associated with one of the, um, I'm going to say, indigenous Chinese beliefs of Taoism. And among its more appealing principles was the belief that illness came from sin. But it was good news for the peasants because since the peasants couldn't afford medicine or have any kind of actual medical care, that means that you could get cured of whatever disease you had by merely confessing all of your sins and all of your awful behaviors and all the stuff. And this rebellion was called the yellow turban rebellion because the element that they would use to be able to identify with each other. And also in order to, um, as a religious symbol, they would wear yellow turbans because yellow was the color of earth. That was the element that they would closely identify with because they believed that that was the opposite of the current element because everything in here where they're talking about Chinese belief system was based off the elements. The Han dynasty was fire. It was destructive. It was ruining society. They were earth. So they were, they were the ones who were protecting it. See, Taoist philosophy really understands the working of the universe through the operations of yin and yang, like the idea of balance and the interaction of the five elements, that being earth, wood, metal, fire, and water. And above all of those five elements were like, which were the base ones, you had Tian, which is heaven. And that was represented by the color blue. Taoism that was favored by most of the Han emperors. And when the Han first came into power, they had associated that heavenly blue color with themselves. But at some point that changed to earth because they were on earth, the yellow. And then by the time of the Turban Rebellion, they claim to rule by the power of fire, red. And so those changes in elements, we, I don't really know going into the finer details of it because it really is getting into heavy Chinese philosophy. And that is not my forte on here, but that was the idea behind it, that these, these two governments, these two powers, these two ideas were actually very closely related. In fact, in many cases, they were literally the same thing. Like the, the two completely different sides were operating from the exact same principles of Taoism with the exact same understanding of what was right and what was wrong. But the Han would claim justification for rule based on the same principles 
that the rebels were using to overthrow them. Now, I'm going to give you this as a fine example, because this is this is a thing that I did. I'm not sure if anyone else did like this in college, but remember when I, I, I was in college and I would tell you about center term where it was like that three week period where it was just one class, but you took it every single day. It was the most pointless thing I've ever heard of. Yeah, that was really cool because you could do a very deep dive into a particular topic. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. One of the ones that we did was and this is, I think, my favorite one that I did was a recreation of a Chinese Confucius court. And it was the entire class debating each other using Confucius like lines and sayings like you had to know what you you had to argue everything from the lens of this. And people would argue for the exact opposite things you guys using were, the exact same line. You were LARPing. We were LARPing. Yes, yes, we were LARPing as Confucius scholars. I am not even. That is an accurate statement. We were LARPing as Confucius scholars. That is the most history majors. No, thing it's not. I've ever heard. No, it's not. The most one that it is is one that I didn't get to do, but I really wanted to do, which was Dr. Tubbs class that allowed you to literally LARP around campus as crusaders. I did not get to do that. It is the I hate that that happened because the one year that I would have been able to, he was taking some students to study abroad for that center term. And I was so angry. Do you want to go back to college to take that class? I you wonder if I could that. for just that one class. I don't probably, know if they would let me if that if it's even still a thing. You could try. I remember that. I mean, when you ask him for your recommendation letter for grad school, you can go, hey, can I sit in on this class? <laughs> So going back to the movement, though, right, its popularity began in the east. Oh, wait, wait, no, I say that we need to have an ad break and then we'll go talk about where it is that they they all popped up. We're going to do that now. Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws. I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside 
The Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And we're back. Okay. So, as I said, the movement's popularity began in the East, and it very quickly spread. This being helped by a series of um, political events, as well as promotional aid to the poor. Like, they really were all about taking care of people and military uprisings. That was a thing. The movement was vicious in its criticism of discrimination against women, against the lower classes, all of which was rife in Chinese society. The cult eventually would turn from just a religious movement into a major military rebellion, which is very iconic, considering that Zhang Zhe, the guy who is in charge of it. Ironic? Yeah, yes. It was very ironic because this wasn't a rebellion at first. What they followed was the idea of it was called the Great Peace. Like that was the movie. It, 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 it's kind of like it, imagine if you had a person that was a priest, I don't know, let's say with Christianity. And they're just going around to everyone saying, turn the other cheek, turn the other cheek. And then someone else pops up and thinks, just right in the face, punch him. That's that's kind of like what the irony is way simplified down from oh, what it is. The only reason I said about. ironic is because you said iconic. Did I? Yes. I'm probably just screwing that up then. I meant ironic. I meant ironic. Um, so the yellow turbans start getting involved in military matters, they get organized into units. They prepare for action. Local government officials get targeted. Their stuff gets smashed by the rebels all across China. And because this is a peasant movement, it's popping up everywhere. Really, the only thing that you need is some kind of angry preacher walking into an area and just saying, like, it is time for rebellion. Everyone rises up. All of this was spreading it like a cancer across society. The rebellion was everywhere. And for the regime, they had no way to handle it. Like there was no central location where the rebels just were and they could go, okay, we're sending one army here. We're going to take care of that. 16 different uh, like commanderies, which that's like the term where it's controlled kind of like by a military official or governor. 16 of them were destroyed. The rulers of it and leaders of it were kidnapped or killed. Cities were captured. The entire country at this point is now split into all kinds of different pockets that are being held by rebels by warlords who are seizing local power or regional governors that are still fairly loyal to the state. That all being said, the rebellion was quashed within a year. It actually did not take too long to get rid of. It wasn't something that would go on for decades, though there would be elements of it that certainly would last. The rebellion was crushed within a year by an army that was sent by Cao Cao which was then one of the Han Emperor's foremost generals. Cao Cao had managed to organize a military coalition of different private armies of the important nobles that were at court and local leaders, and he molded them into a kind of elite professional fighting force. The rebel leader, Zhang Zhe, was either killed in battle or executed, we don't really know, and the rebellion would still rumble on without him, but significantly more quiet, way more localized in the eastern uh, Sichuan province. But that all being said, it didn't matter that the rebellion was crushed. The damage was done. Because now, at least on paper, there was some semblance of central authority. But at this point, there was very little difference between a local governor and the local warlord who was now fighting in China. So they couldn't differentiate. They couldn't really differentiate because. 
It was a toss-up? It was a toss-up, which just made it even more chaotic. Because now you had local warlords who had their own essential private army backing them in any place that they could rise up in. But let's talk about that one guy, Cao Cao. So Cao Cao had started his career as a commandant and police chief at the Han capital of Luoyang in the 170s. He very early on established a reputation as being a stickler for the law. He was not afraid to challenge the rich and powerful. He's, if you wanted to compare him to anything, he is the schemer. He is a guy that Machiavelli, when Machiavelli was writing about Cesare Borgia in Italy, like with his, like the prince, Saltzau would probably make Machiavelli pretty happy because he was ruthless, but he was smart, but he was also ruthless. I know I said that the first time, but that, that really doubles down on Emphasis what it is that he would do. Emphasis on ruthless. Emphasis on ruthless. He was sly. He was very, very intelligent. Even to this day, like when you would have um, actors that portray him, if they're using masks in like theater productions, then they'll, they'll use things that are just like, caricatures of like a sly person looking down on you you know how we have that phrase uh speak of the devil well in chinese they literally have speak of cao cao and he appears wait really because he was the devil essentially it didn't mean that he was necessarily evil but it was like the thing that would come after you and attack you and could get you he was very very he was a very big deal there were a lot of other military leaders though just like besides cao cao this was a unfortunate consequence, as I said, of the Yellow Turban Rebellion. There were many different local warlords that had backed the emperor, raised their own armies, and dealt with the rebellion in their particular region. And now as a result of that, these armies, with nothing else to do, backed their local warlords and began to clash with each other in a kind of sustained civil war, during which when this happened, the capital at Luoyang ended up being sacked by one of them. Dong Zhou. And this, if, if Cao Cao is like the schemer, this is the big baddie. This is the one that in any, any kind of game, I didn't get a picture of this in order, to, uh, in order to show, but when you see him depicted in games and things, he's this massive, like towering huge figure, but super obese in a massive set of armor. And he's just this, this like great idea of the thing that I kid you not with this would eat society. The guy who would be having feasts while people are being tortured in front of him. That's terrifying. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not even kidding here. So Dong Zhao, this guy, he's a frontier general turned warlord. He's based in the northwest of China. He's got a very long military career. He's worked up his up the ranks from the starting point as being a member of the Imperial Guard and Zhou's unit was the elite core, the gentlemen of the feathered forest, whose members were composed of these sons and grandsons of people who had lost their fathers in battle. So Zhou was the exact kind of Han general that we've been talking about, right? The guy who had been permanently stationed on the frontier, and as a result of that, he has been accumulating a lot of power. He's been there for over a decade, left to his own devices. And now... He can pretty much do whatever he wants. This is what I mean by that. He gets recalled back to court in 189, but he refuses to do so on the grounds that his men not only needed him, like he knows that he needs them, but that they physically forced him to come back 
by pulling his carriage so that they would not let him go. So he knew. He, he knew. knew that they were loyal to only him. Like they didn't care about anybody else. Very clearly this did not happen. Or if it did, that it was a completely staged thing that he had people do it to stop him. And we're going to talk about this whole thing with staged ceremonies and stuff, because that is another big figure when it came to puppet governments that they would set up. He was very fully aware that they were loyal to him and him alone. So in 189, after taking full advantage of the chaos and responding for the call to like to assist the court, like in the capital by the grand general, He Jin, who is the half brother of He, the Empress Dowager, like that is the person that is the um, that is the mother of the current emperor. Zhao moved to be within 110 kilometers of Lu Yang. And at the imperial court, you had high-ranking officials and military leaders that were tired of this central bullshit that was occurring with these units that they were corrupting and ruining the government. So they get forced into action when He Jin gets murdered in the palace. So all these warlords then come together in like perhaps one of the last ditch efforts of working together and they assassinate and murder all 2,000 of those eunuchs who had been pulling the strings of power. Like the guy. 2,000. All 2,000. Well, you have to remember the entire thing for the bureaucracy, like in the Chinese imperial court, the reason why they would use eunuchs, why eunuchs were a thing to be used in government is because eunuchs with their testicles having been removed, not being able to have children. They couldn't soil the royal bloodline. Yeah, they couldn't everybody. soil the royal bloodline, but also they couldn't have children themselves and families to oh. pass property down to. So they were safe to hold office because they couldn't take anything for themselves and break it off to give to someone in their own family. That is so yes. smart. Yes. I really came in there super cocky. I was like, oh, we all know. Ooh, cocky, huh? Not the eunuchs. Okay, well... Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> so again, the, the idea of it, the idea of it was that they wouldn't want to achieve power. But I that's not like how humans work. That joke is going to piss someone off. It <laughs> might. It might. Sorry. But the thing is, the, the thing is, while that is the idea, and it seems like a good idea initially, that's not how humans function. So they definitely became exceptionally corrupt over time. They were pulling the strings. They were trying to manage everything with the What did they want it for? Gabby, how many times do you describe to me all the things that you would want to do if you had power in certain situations? What? Moving We're not going to go into that in detail, so, but you have told me. So, the, continue. The perpetrators of the coup. Yeah. So, the perpetrators of this coup then make a big miscalculation. They mess up because they go and invite Joel into the city, which then had a population of around half a million people. And so the warlord is like, sure, yeah, I'm going to do this. He goes in and he goes to put down the eunuchs. And in doing so, he burns the entire capital to the ground because the majority of the buildings at this point are made of wood. That includes the library, all the archives, every kind of government building, anything you can imagine that is made of wood, gone. He then also kidnaps the young emperor, Shaudi. And so Joel was very far from his base. He's outside of this burning city with the, with, the, uh, with, the, with the young kid emperor. And he's like, huh. You know, I'm, I'm going to go back home now. So he retreats. He goes back to one of his points of power, Chang'an. This was the former Han capital. It is surrounded by mountains, and it's way more of a defensible headquarters. So he's left everything back there in a bit of a state of chaos. 
but he would enjoy his success. The, again, when I say that he is regarded as evil, as a scoundrel, as like the worst of the worst of society, the later sources that would describe him would talk about him as a kind of mad king, a despot. There is a, uh, a, a passage that is oftentimes quoted that would describe one of his behaviors. Is this real? I'm going to say probably not because it's the romance of the three kingdoms and it's very, very, very exaggerated and it has heroes and villains and they're going to make him to be a way worse villain than he probably was. It makes for good theater. Makes for good theater, which is a lot of what they would do. So the quote goes that on one such occasion, Dong Zhou had spread a great feast for all those assembled to witness his departure. And while it was in progress, there arrived a very large number of rebels from the north who had voluntarily surrendered. The tyrant had them brought before him. He sat them at a table and he then brought them to him as he sat at the table and then proceeded to just inflict cruelties upon them. The hands of one of them were lopped off, the feet of another one. Uh, one guy had his eyes gouged out. Another one lost their tongues. Some were boiled to death. And as their shrieks of agony rose to the heavens and the courtiers around him fainted with terror, the author of this misery ate and drank, chatting with his friends, smiling as though nothing was going on. That has to be fake, right? Literally has to be fake. It sounds like a Game of Thrones-esque scenario. It does. Which, to be fair, considering what we're talking about in history, there are plenty of times when horrible things have happened. The, the events of this are more than likely an exaggeration, but that's just how these things function. So, with any sense of unity among Han China now gone, now it was the time for warlords. But before we go into that, time for a commercial break. And we're back. So, after Dong Zhou goes and invades Luoyang, Cao Cao goes and flees to Qin Liu, which is, you're, from this point, we're going to move pretty quick. There is a lot of names in here of places and people that might get missed. I'm going to try and explain it the best I can. So Cao Cao goes and flees to Qin Liu, which is in the southeast of Kaifeng in the Henan province. And there he begins to assemble a military force in order to revolt. But in 193, Dong gets killed in a mutiny. But the fact that he was dead didn't matter. Now all the warlords were going at each other's throats, and that period of unrest would continue all the way until 196, where all these different areas that had broken free from the central authority now were effectively their own counties, their own duchies, their own whatever. And the two most powerful of them were Yuan Shou and Cao Cao. In 196, Cao Cao held Emperor Xi'an under duress and he took advantage of his military strength and his abilities to strengthen his own military power because now he, not Dong Zhou, was the guy who had the emperor hostage and could do whatever he wanted. So in 2000, or not 2000, in 201, with comparatively weaker strength, Cao Cao then went and defeated Yuan Shou in the Battle of Guangdu, after which he would gradually go on to unify the general area of northern China. Over the years, he would be able to do this, and then in 209, Cao Cao would then drive his troops to the southern regions and capture Jingzhou. But when he wanted to expand his power further in the south, he ended up getting defeated by the allied forces of Liu Bei and Sun Quan in the Battle of Red Cliff, which that right there, the Battle of Red Cliff, 
That is perhaps one of the most famous battles in all of history. It is cited in so many different games, in movies, in everything. The amount of movies that I have seen that are the Battle of Red Cliff, there is way, way, way too many. I could probably do an entire thing on just that one battle because of how big it is. But needless to say, he failed. And so since he got driven back, he then moved back to the north and consolidated his power base there on the central plains of China. Years go by. Now it's the year 220. Cao Cao goes and dies in Liuyang at the age of 65. He failed to unify all of China under his rule, allegedly of some kind of head disease. Interestingly enough, his will instructed that he was supposed to be buried in a tomb in Yi without gold or any kind of jade treasures. There wasn't supposed to be any kind of ceremony, none of that. All of his subjects were supposed to remain on duty at the frontier where any other rebels or forces could possibly appear and to not attend his funeral because in his own words, the country was still unstable. Which, yes, go figure. It really was. But this was a guy who was like, guys, don't, please don't bother me. Just, just go, go, go kill those guys, please. I, I, I don't, I don't care. So he didn't want anyone attending it. It was kind of hilarious. His eldest son, Cao Pi, then goes and succeeds him. And within a year, Cao Pi forces Emperor Xi'an to abdicate, proclaiming himself instead as the first emperor of the state of Cao Wei. Cao Cao was then posthumously titled the Grand Ancestral Emperor Wu of Wei. And in the winter of 2020, when he made his move for that imperial 220. throne. What did I say? Did 2020. I say 2020. I, I'm missing that. COVID and Cao Pi? <laughs> the same listen, year. Listen, the Chinese were doing all kinds of things at that point, I guess. Like, what can I say? So he forces Xi'an to yield him the throne. He does so. Cao Pi formally declines this three times. Remember what I said about that whole thing of... um um of people doing all this performative stuff that doesn't actually mean anything. Steven, I need you to give me $2,000. No. And then I hand my wallet over to you anyway when I say I that. I refuse. Okay, yes. No, you already understand exactly what it is that I'm talking about here. You have to do it two here. more times. Yeah. What is wrong yes. with you? <laughs> okay. Yes, I know. For anyone that's confused on what the little interaction means or any of that, that's exactly what would happen. The idea behind it in multiple times in history is that you would have someone who is being presented with a position of power and they refuse because no, I couldn't dine to do that. It's too important. I'm not worthy. And then they're insistent. No, you must do it. No, I cannot. I absolutely cannot. Literally me when my boss is trying to send me home early and I'm like, no, ask again though, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the important thing is not whether or not you wanted to take power. It's about whether or not you seemed like you wanted to take power. Because if you seemed like you wanted to take power, then that means you weren't right for the job. Exactly. I'm not getting that. that, that is, that's how it This work. is a mind game. This is like some 2010s-esque dating mind game. Yeah. Yeah. But with the rule of country and the slaughter of millions, yes. Well, yeah, that's collateral damage, but... <laughs> So th this whole thing happens multiple times and would become a very, very common thing for any kind of uh, future usurpations, usurpations, like when people would basically try to take over the throne. He finally accepts, 
He establishes the state of Salway, and this event would officially mark the end of the Han Dynasty and the beginning of the Three Kingdoms period. This entire time that we've been talking about this, all of this stuff is the background to the Three Kingdoms, because the Three Kingdoms is the point when all of this had consolidated into three different major powers that were the ones that were in charge. And so he was granted the title the Duke of, or sorry, the dethroned emperor was then granted the title the Duke of Shangyang. Cao Pi then went and granted a bunch of posthumous titles of emperors to his grandfather, Cao Song, his father, his mother, the Queen Dowager, became the Empress Dowager, and then he goes and moves the capital from Zhucheng to Liuyang. Okay, what did moving the capital entail for a kingdom like this? Like, That's did it cause unrest? Were people just like, cool, I guess we're not the capital now. Gotta move. It's all about where the seat of government is. That's the only thing that matters. So, when so you, it wasn't business. It wasn't anything else. It, just where the leader lived. You would want to do it wherever you could have the best power base. So historically speaking, what would happen is that you had two different types of moving the capital. In a settled society, what would happen is that when you would move the capital and you would build an entire new city in that place. And in some places, it was a tradition that every single time there was a new emperor, there would be a new capital. They would do this stuff. Other cases, in the case of nomadic tribes, you'd have the capital, but the capital was the moving official government that would travel around the country. And the reason why they would travel around the country in a mobile moving caravan is because they would want people to see, oh, the ruler is here. Everyone be, be on your best behavior. Pay your taxes. Uh, don't, don't, don't try to do anything. So it wasn't like moving commerce. It wasn't moving anything like that. It's just wherever. You would, well, not wherever. You would move it where you could have the best power base. So like in the case of, uh, The say, most supporters? Yeah. You, the most supporters and also perhaps the greatest claim to something. Like in this case, Lu Yang, that was the capital of the Han Empire. That was the capital of the dynasty. So moving the capital back to that has huge symbolic importance. Like, yes, he was meant to come back here. This leadership was meant to go yeah, back see? because he's leading out of this area. He has the power of the Han Dynasty. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Whereas before they were maybe a little bit further away because they were in a location where they had more supporters or they had more like um, it was a, a safer, more defensible position that wasn't as close to the front line. So that, that's where you can move the capital at different points. So. A year later, 221, Liu Bei then declares himself Emperor Tu, and he establishes the state of Shu Han. Now, he claims that his intention there was to keep the Han Dynasty's lineage alive, and he changes the reign year and makes a guy called Zhu Geliang his chancellor and Zhu Jing his minister over the masses. He then establishes a bureaucracy and an ancestral temple, and he offers sacrifices to Emperor Gao who was the founding emperor of the Han Dynasty. He then designates Lady Wu as his empress, and he makes his son, Liu Shan, his crown prince. Later, he named his son Liu Yang, Prince of Liu, and his other son, Liu Li, Prince of Liang, which I feel like is I a like tongue twister those. just trying to say this. I love those names. They're cute, <laughs> which is probably not what he was going for. Now, again. We're going to get into a whole sequence of events. There's going to be a lot of things. There's going to be a lot of battles. There's going to be a lot of names. There's going to be a lot of places. It's going to get messy here. So we're going to go through this. But before we do that, time for a commercial break. 
So the first thing that we're going to talk about after this is we have the Battle of Xiaoting, which is also known as the Battle of Yingling and the Battle of Yingling and Xiaoting. This was fought between the states of Shu and the state of Wu between the years of 221 and 222 in the early period of the Three Kingdoms. So this battle is very significant because Wu was able to turn the situation into a whole series of initial losses into a defensive stalemate before then proceeding to win a decisive victory over Shu. And that Wu victory would stop the Shu invasion and proceed to the death of Liu Bei, which was Shu's founding emperor. You're going to see this a lot back and forth where each side is gradually trying to take over the other, but then the other two would team up against it, etc. Now, the big, the big state in here is Wei, like the one that Cao Cao founded. That's the big one. So that's number one. Wu is number two. And Shu is the smallest among all of them. So Zhuge Liang then launches a southern campaign, which is also known as the War of Pacification in Nanjong. This was a military campaign which took place in 225 during the early Three Kingdoms period. And it was against the forces in the Nanjong region, which cover parts of present-day Yunnan, Weishou, and southern Sichuan. The campaign was a response to different rebellions that were being started by local governors in the region and intrusions by barbarians. Now, these Nanman, literally southern barbarians, were the people that were coming up from the region that we would associate today as like northern Vietnam and like that region, like the coming from the jungles. And he would then launch a northern expedition, which was a series of five different military campaigns that were launched from the state of Shu Han against the rival state of Cao Wei from 228 to 234. All five expeditions of these were led by him, and they ended up proving unsuccessful, as many of the military campaigns in the early days were. They all would end up eventually as a kind of stalemate. But these are some of the best-known conflicts that we were able to, to study and learn from, and it's one of the few cases of these battles in the beginning where both sides were relatively equally matched. Because over time, they would gradually begin to bleed away at one another until one side would just have overwhelming numerical superiority because the bigger, not industrial base, but like the bigger power base from which they could draw. So in 229, Sun Quan then declares himself emperor, right? This damages his alliance that he has with Shu. Many Shu officials see that this is a sign of betrayal of the Han dynasty, to which Shu has claimed to be the legitimate successor. But Zhuge Liang didn't want their alliance to end. This is where powers number two and three are teaming up with one another because they still kind of needed each other. And so they pledged to support each other in their conquest. And if they managed to take down the state of Wei, then they will divide it equally between the two of them. Oh, they're lying. Which I forgot to turn never, on my mic on, but I know they're lying. Which is never how that works I've out. I've never played that game and you're like, oh, if you help me, I'll help you. And then like immediately, as soon as the oh, other yeah. one's defeated, you're like, ha, bye. Yeah, welcome. Yeah, that welcome to history. And welcome to every time I would play European Universalis for any every of the multiplayer games. Every time I play games. Civilization with you. She's not saying that for me betraying her. She's saying it vice versa for her betraying me. It's a very common thing. I'm just saying that right now here. You weren't supposed to know that. <laughs> so th th this whole thing happens with this alliance. Later in the year, they go and move. Um, uh, uh, the Zhuge Liang goes and moves his capital from Wucheng to Jianye, 
leaving the crown prince, Sun Deng, assisted by a guy called Lu Xun, in charge of the western parts of eastern Wu. Things were steady in the beginning, but they gradually begin to fracture apart, like for all the different groups, they each kind of run into their own different issues. Again, we're moving through this quick. I know it's a bit of a beast to understand, but this is what happens. You then have a guy called Sima Yi. Sima Yi has a Liu Dong campaign that starts in 238, and he was a general of the state of Cao Wei at the time, before his descendants would end up taking everything over. But we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. Because all of this is going to be filled with betrayal and different names and backstabs and different stuff. So he goes and leads a force of 40,000 people to attack the kingdom of Yan, which is led by, which is a whole other thing entirely, because these are the three main states, but then there's another thing called Yan that is led by a warlord called Gansung Yuan, who was a clan that had ruled independently from the central government for effectively three generations in the far north. Like, these were the guys who were one of the far-flung military uh, provincial governor people that would just had regional control because no one was there to actually tell them what to do. So this was, or that's what they were doing. And after a siege that lasted three months, Gan Sung Yuan's headquarters fell to Sima Yi with the assistance of Goguryeo, which I'm probably mispronouncing, but that is one of the three kingdoms. Again, this is going to be confusing. It's one of the three kingdoms of Korea, not China, because Korea was not unified at this point and had their own kind of three kingdoms period that was going on. Yes, the world is very chaotic. Welcome to history. James That's what happens. needs to put some maps up on this video because I'm confused. Yeah, we'll probably end up needing a whole thing with different maps just for people to understand. And so many people in the Yan Kingdom were massacred from this. And in addition to eliminating Wei's rival in the Northeast, the acquisition of Liu Dong as a result of the successful campaign would allow the state of Wei to contact with the non-Han peoples of Manchuria, the Korean Peninsula, the Japanese archipelago, really get in contact and solidify their foreign power and presence. But on the other hand, with the war and the subsequent centralization policies that they had, this lessened Chinese grip on the territory, which then permitted a number of non-Han states to form in the area in later centuries. So because they removed the local warlord that was like doing everything up there, this allowed the other states to, to develop more independence and form on their own in later years. So we fast forward again, 249, it's like 10 years down the line. This is during the reign of Cao Rui, which is another one of the Cao descendants. His successor, Cao Feng, the regent Sima Yi, then goes and seizes power from his co-regent, Cao Shuang, in a coup. Because they're all betraying one another at this point. This event then marks the entire collapse of central authority and imperial authority in Wei, as Cao Feng's role has now been reduced to that of basically a puppet ruler, while Sima Yi and the Sima clan, they wield state power firmly in their hands. Wang Ling, who was a Wei general, tried to rebel against Sima Yi, but then gets swiftly dealt with, and then just has to take his own life. Sima Yi dies a little bit later, like two years down the line, in 251, and he passes on his authority to his eldest son, Sima Shi, who then would continue to rule as regent. At this point, you have to remember, so you had the Han Dynasty, right? You had a puppet emperor. These guys then declare themselves to be the actual emperor. And then they themselves are getting deposed by another group that is now, they're still in charge, 
but they're now being ruled as puppet emperors when they before were the guy who were ruling the puppet emperors. They are puppets of puppets. No, no, they are puppets who had controlled puppets before, but now they're puppets themselves. It sounds effective. I can't explain it, but it does. Yeah, but you can see from the description here as to why it just becomes a complete and utter mess at this point. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I just don't understand how they could let the... I guess hindsight is twenty twenty, but that dynasty was massive. Yes, yes, and everything falls apart because now everyone is trying to seize power from it. So Sima Shi then goes and deposes Sao Feng in 254 on the grounds of planning to stage a rebellion, and he replaces him with a guy called Sao Mao. And in response, you have another guy who stages a rebellion, but then gets crushed by Sima Shi in an event that took a very heavy toll on his health because he apparently had had eye surgery just a little bit before that, causing him to die shortly after in 255. Eye surgery in 255? Oh, yeah. Welcome to history. That was probably not Can a pleasant thing a that Chinese he had to do. Chinese medicine? We just did Egyptian. That would be such a oh, good podcast absolutely. episode because they have some really interesting, like, today, to this day, Chinese medicine is used. Yeah, absolutely. We will need to do that. I agree. So. All of this is going down. He dies, but not before handing over his power and regency to his younger brother. Because it's, it's, it's interesting. Remember how I'm saying this, handing over a regency? So it, it's, it's almost like if you Why associated... Why would the regent have the power to hand it over? Because the regent is passing down. The, the regent is now a hereditary position where the son of the regent is the regent of the emperor. <laughs> I am so confused. I'm, I know. I love it, but I've, I've not done a good job of keeping track of the regions, so the emperor. I want you to the... think about it this. I want you to think about it like this. So at your job, the CEO of the company, you are actually the one who is controlling him, right? The CEO, child, is now the new CEO of the company because they inherited the company and you initially control them while they're still in charge. But then you are starting to die. So you give your power to Joya, our daughter. And now Joya is, is in, in charge, charge of, of the that, CEO. Of the, of the, charge of the CEO. Yes. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I love how you communicate with me by relating everything back to my job. It, it kind of functions if you could associate it. It's, it. You need things that people can compare to, like to, to understand stuff. Because I will fully admit this is a very confusing point in history. So a lot of stuff. Gets no, missed. that really clarified because I was I was so confused. I'm like, why is the regent handing over power? That doesn't make any sense. But now I get it. So in 258, Sima Zhao then goes and quells another rebellion, marking an end to a period that was known as the three rebellions in Shochun. In 260, Sao Mao, the guy who is supposed to be in charge, but he's a puppet of the Sima clan. He then tries to take back power for himself in a coup, but then gets killed by Cheng Ji, which is the military official who is serving under a guy called Jia Chong, who is a subordinate to the Simas. So the emperor tries to take back power and then gets killed. So then what do they do? They just go and put another guy, Sao Huan. He's enthroned as the fifth new emperor of Wei, who they're all totally going to serve and totally not have any issues with. 100%. Like, what I do as soon as someone dies, I'm like, yes, this new guy, love him. Yeah. But then Sao Han ended up being just a mere figurehead under Sima Zhao's control, much like his predecessors. In 263, Wei armies, then led by Zhong He and Deng Ai, conquered Shu. 
and afterwards, Zhang Hui and the former Shu general Jiang Wei then grouped and plotted together in order to oust Sima Zhao from power. So now there's another coup that's trying to happen, but then various Wei officials ended up turning against them when it was found out that Jiang Wei had urged Zhang Hui to get rid of these officials before the coup. So these guys that are controlling the puppet emperor behind, like, who are outright controlling the puppet emperor, their own generals now try to turn against them. But then the bureaucrats that are supporting the empire, who know exactly what is happening, they see that these generals are going to do the exact same thing as what happened with the eunuchs and kill them. So they reveal the whole plot of the coup, and now the coup gets foiled, and it all crashes again. Again, messy. I love it. It's <laughs> drama, but I'm not included in it. So it's perfect. So Sima Zhao himself went and received the nine bestowments and the title of Duke of Jin in 263 and was then further bestowed the title of King of Jin by Sa Huan in 264. But then he dies on the 6th of September 265, leaving the final step of him usurping power up to his eldest son. Sima Yan. And so all while this is happening, the conquest of Shu by Wei is launched. You have a military campaign that is launched by Cao Wei against its rival Shu Han state in 263 during the Three Kingdoms period. The campaign culminates in the fall of Shu Han. That three-way equilibrium between the three powers, gone, because now one of the stages is, is, is wiped, and the Wei can now continuously eat onto the Wu, gradually taking them over. And that conquest would essentially lay the foundation for the eventual reunification of China under the Western Jin. But we're going to get into that. On September 6th, 265, Sima Zhao dies without having formally taken upon the imperial authority, like the actual title of emperor. And so Sima Yan, his son, then becomes the king of Jin the next day. In February of 266, he then forces the current emperor, Cao Huan, to abdicate, ending the state of Cao Wei. Four days later, in 266, on February 8th, he declares himself emperor of the new Jin dynasty. And then the conquest of Wu by Jin was launched right towards like the end of this, in 280, at the end of the Three Kingdoms period, and it concluded with the fall of Wu and the end of the Three Kingdoms period under the unification of the very short-lived Jin dynasty. We're not going to talk about how that one falls, but it, it falls very quickly after can, this. Can we talk about it at well, some point? At not some point, now. At some point, we probably can. Okay, Chinese history is amazing. Why don't we do more of this? Well, to be honest, we've just done other random things that have occurred either in our head or that other people have suggested to us. So that is on the note here, really, at the end. If there is... Any kind of thing that you all would like to see, please make sure to send us an email. Go to our website. Go to the history of everything podcast.com. Click on the contact. Send us an email with your suggestions of things that we should do. Send us the suggestions on Patreon, whatever it is that you'd like to do. Also, speaking of that, we should probably do a family history because while we were recording, one of the times I looked down on my phone, someone did in fact send in the history of their grandfather who lived during the Great Depression. Excellent. Okay. Well, awesome. We do actually have something to do here at the end with a, uh, with a listener story. So this is from Dylan, who says, My grandfather grew up in the Great Depression. After he turned 18, he signed up for the Marines 
And this was almost a decade after World War II ended. After his service, he then used the money the government gave for further education to study business. He was terrible at this, so he then went into the police academy and he found his calling. <laughs> so he sucked in business. So he's like, okay, screw it. I'm going to go become a police officer. So he found his calling, became a deputy, then an officer, then a bailiff, a detective, and then back to being an officer again. He then moved from California back to his roots in Texas, thinking that it would be better for family. He was then a bailiff and an officer again before retiring. But during his time as a court bailiff in California, he served in the same court as a historic case, Charles Manson. And he was one of the bailiffs that searched Manson on the day that he brought a newspaper into the court and nobody saw the bloody X he and his followers had carved on themselves. On the newspaper incident, though, his boss and the judge were pissed. He said that he and the other bailiff gave them a talking to that even his mama never gave him. But that was the story of my grandfather. After my grandma died, he moved back to California and he still lives there today. And I talk with him at least once a week. Dylan, that's an awesome little story there. See, this is the kind of thing that I'm talking about. So many people are afraid to send in stories because it's like, oh, they didn't like do anything crazy. But it's like if they if you have a relative who interacted with someone has some kind of story or experienced something like from an event. That's always an awesome story to hear. Because even if it's something like my grandma knitted a cloak that was, I don't know. It's just. It's cool. It's cool. There's yeah. all kinds of different stories. And we've said this from the beginning, but in the history of everything, there is always a story to tell. That's every single person say has one. Everything. We're not joking. I think everybody's story deserves to be told. It doesn't really matter um, if it was epic or not. Because. I mean, different people are going to think of it in different ways. The amount of times that I think that something is, is amazing and then Gabby doesn't actually care about it's it. It's subjective. It's completely subjective. So we want it to be something for everyone, whether you think battles are cool or just on the ground politics is cool or interacting with someone famous. It, it's, it's really subjective what you think is worthy of being told as a story. So, But thank you for listening to our story today. And I do hope that you have a good rest of your day. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And goodbye. Bye. <laughs>